You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. In connection with a sermon this afternoon, in which the sixth commandment will have our attention, I would invite you to turn your attention first to Genesis chapter 9. We'll read the verses 1 through 7. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall upon all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air, upon every creature that moves along the ground and upon all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal. And from each man, too, I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. We'll turn now to the New Testament, 1 John chapter 3. Begin reading at verse 11. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, We have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Our text this afternoon is the Word of God as it's summarized and confessed by the church in Lord's Day 40 of the Heidelberg Catechism. What does God require in the sixth commandment? I'm not to dishonor, hate, injure, or kill my neighbor by thoughts, words, or gestures, and much less by deeds, whether personally or through another. Rather, I am to put away all desire of revenge. Moreover, I'm not to harm or recklessly endanger myself. Therefore, also, the government bears the sword to prevent murder. But does this commandment speak only of killing? 
By forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, such as envy, hatred, anger, and desire of revenge, and that he regards all these as murder. Is it enough then that we do not kill our neighbor in any such way? No. When God condemns envy, hatred, and anger, he commands us to love our neighbors as ourselves, to show patience, peace, gentleness, mercy, and friendliness toward him, to protect him from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, every week we read together the Ten Commandments. Every week we read that you shall not murder. I wonder how many of us really pay attention to that one. It seems as we're going through the commandments that that's a pretty easy one to just sort of check off the box. Yep, haven't done that this week. Don't have any intention of doing that again next week. I'm okay. Let's move on to the next one. When you look at the sixth commandment, it's pretty easy for your mind to go to prisons full of terrible criminals, to think of governments that don't respect life in its earliest days, in its later days. It's pretty easy, in fact, to think about anyone else besides yourself. Murder? No way. Murderers are bad people. I'm not like that. But the reality is, and it comes again each week as we read the Ten Commandments together, that every single commandment is aimed right at us. Every single commandment hits us right in the heart. And perhaps no commandment hits us right in the heart in the way that the Sixth Commandment does. No commandment, perhaps, exposes our sinfulness so much as the Sixth Commandment. The First Commandment probably does more. In the Second Table, certainly the Sixth Commandment. And so the message from God's Word this afternoon, the command is to cherish the life of your neighbor. Cherish the life of your neighbor. And as we consider this, we'll see what we're talking about with this commandment being directed straight at us in our hearts. We'll consider first the value of the life of our neighbor. There is something special in the life of every human being. Something very cherishable within them. We'll consider also the true nature of murder. And finally, we'll consider the way that the Lord Jesus lays before us the way of true love. So first of all, the value of the life of our neighbor. Their life is in every way cherishable. Now, the sixth commandment prohibits murder. That is very clear from the commandment. You shall not murder. You shall not kill unlawfully, you might say. There are situations where it's lawful to put someone to death. And the Lord in the Old Testament law 
has situations where it's lawful to put someone to death. What this commandment prohibits is unlawful killing of another human life. But what the Sixth Commandment doesn't tell us is why we're not to murder. The why is all over Scripture, and it begins at the very beginning, in fact, where Scripture reveals that man was made in the image of God, in the image of God himself. The Lord there says, let us make man in our image. And then he goes on to create Adam from the dust of the ground in his own image, and then he makes woman out of the rib of the man. They're both made in the image of God. In the image of God, he made them male and female. He created them. So clearly, there's something very special about mankind. Special enough to give the title of the sixth day as the Lord looks over his creation, very good. Adam and Eve, the parents of all mankind, were made directly by God, and they were made in his image. That is, they were unique, they were special, they were honorable. Adam and Eve were the very pinnacle of God's good and glorious creation. That means also today that of all of God's creatures, human beings are the pinnacle. God made Adam and Eve to be his own representatives on the earth. It was his design that he would, in fact, live in them and that he would have his power radiate through them into the world that he had created. Adam and Eve reflected God himself in the in the essence of who they were and therefore also in everything that they did. God created mankind in his image so as to be a blessing to the world so they could fill the earth, subdue, increase over it and subdue it and rule over it. It would do that as representatives of God on this earth. What a glorious and a beautiful, special task they were given. Part of the image of God also was the ability for Adam and Eve and for all people to commune with each other. They could have fellowship with each other in a way that that reflected the fellowship that God has in his trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Did God not make male and female complementary in order to achieve a greater fullness among them as a unity than they could in their parts. Adam wasn't complete, and so he made Eve. So that they would be greater as a unit than they would alone. Didn't God make Adam and Eve able to conceive because he desired that they would expand and commune and praise him all over the earth in an ever-increasing diversity of praise and honor to him? God created mankind to achieve a purpose that only mankind could do. To willfully and consciously and bodily worship his creator. Yes, God created everything for his praise. But he created man in such a way that he could worship God willfully and consciously and bodily. In the most beautiful, articulate 
an intentional way. No other creature could do what God created mankind to do. And so you you see, you really begin to see only why human life is so special. Every single human life is so special. And you also understand that the life of a person is so much more than just their beating heart or their functioning mind. It's the fullness of what they were created to be and all that God has enabled them to do most of all for his glory. Their character is all of those things, all that God has created them for, all that wonderful potential. And if you begin to understand how unique and special God's creation of mankind, male and female, was, it's then that you begin to understand how serious and far-reaching is the crime of murder. How serious the ending of that special, uniquely created life that God has given. Now you may wonder, didn't the fall into sin affect this? How did the fall into sin affect the character of humanity? Did humanity at one moment when they fell into sin become so despicable, so terrible to God that they no longer maintain any dignity or honor? No, they didn't. Not at all. The fall into sin introduced the reality of death and therefore also murder into the human experience. But even in the fall into sin, man retains the image of God and all that is included in that image. The same purpose for which God created Adam and Eve is the same purpose for which he has created each and every one of us. Each and every human being in this world. It becomes clear that God still that there is still honor and dignity in the life of each person already immediately after the fall into sin in Genesis 4. In Genesis 4, you read about Cain murdering his brother Abel. Was God so angry at humanity that it did not matter what Cain did to Abel at that point? Because Abel, too, was a sinner and therefore not worthy of dignity and honor? Not at all. Abel's blood cried out to God from the ground. Abel's Life had dignity and honor. Abel's life ought not to have been ended because it was life created for the praise and worship of God. And yet, that is the very life that Cain put to death. In fact, later you go to our reading, a few chapters further in Genesis, Genesis 9, and God explicitly draws the link between the honor and dignity of being made in the image of God and the consequent crime of murder. Genesis 9 verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. It's the most terrible crime to end the life of a person. Why? Because they're made in the image of God. People being made in the image of God have inherent dignity, honor, and value, and it is no other human being's right to take that unlawfully. 
And so the sixth commandment reflects the special character of human life and the honor, value, and dignity that that life holds. Now, the wider law given in the Bible, in fact, maintains what God has shown in creation. What's very clear from the law and also implicit in the sixth commandment is that a person's honor, value, and dignity does not simply mean that you're not to kill them. That is, to put their, to put an end to their life, to put an end to their vital signs. But any action which undermines a person's honor, value, and dignity was forbidden by God's law. Leviticus 19, verses 17 through 18. Do not hate your brother in your heart. Rebuke your brother frankly so that you will not share in his guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And that's why the Lord Jesus was not giving a new law when in the Sermon on the Mount, he said that anyone who curses his neighbor is guilty of murder. Life is so much more than vital signs and murder is so much more than simply ending those vital signs. Our Lord Jesus cherished life. That's why he never dishonored, hated, injured, or killed his neighbor. Repeatedly throughout the Gospels, we read that Jesus had compassion on people, that he asked God to forgive them, that he reacted to insult and injury with love. Even those whom he rebuked and corrected very strongly. Think, for example, of Matthew 23, when he speaks those woes against the Pharisees. Even when he did that, he did so in a, in a way that maintained, that, that respected their honor and dignity. He rebuked them frankly, directly, and with the purpose of their repentance. So they would realize their sinfulness and return to the Lord. He was motivated by love in all of his interactions with other people. Every single person radiates the image of God. Every single person is worthy of honor, of your honor. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter what gender they are. It doesn't matter what nationality they are. It doesn't matter what age they are. It doesn't matter, in fact, what crime they have committed. It doesn't matter what vile thing they've perpetrated. Yes, there's justice. But even that justice has to bear the weight of the image of God in which every person is created. Because every person is made in the image of God, they are more than the sum total of all their actions of all their deeds. Therefore, every action toward them must be in accordance with that dignity. Every thought, word, and deed must cherish their God-created life. And so is the life that God has given to every human being. It's when you consider the nature of human life that you begin to understand the true nature of murder. We move on now to the second point, the true nature 
of murder. Now, there is a lot more to murder than we're going to consider this afternoon. We hope to have opportunity to examine our responsibilities with respect to the government's responsibility of preventing murder in a few weeks. But before we do that, we need to realize that the sixth commandment applies, first of all, to us. We tend to think that murder refers to only physical death. But that, of course, fails to understand the fullness of human life as God has created it and our responsibility to cherish that life rightly. Murder refers to any time we fail to cherish the life of our neighbor. And that can be by deeds, obviously. Murder refers to the outright ending of someone's life or the attempt to do so. It refers to, as the catechism says, gestures, the outward communication of the heart's desire, of an inward desire. Hatred, the Lord Jesus said, is murder. And any gesture that communicates that desire to murder belies the heart and breaks God's law. Also, our words are included in this. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. To threaten someone with death is punishable, in fact, by the law of the land. To threaten someone with death is considered murder under the law of God. And it goes deeper than that as well. To communicate hatred to anyone with our lips or with our words written or in any other way is to murder. Even thoughts, even our thoughts stand before God guilty. No human law court could ever police our minds, but our Heavenly Father knows what happens in our minds. He knows how we plot revenge. He knows how we stew with anger. He knows how we plan our attack. He knows how we respond to mere inconveniences with self-righteous indignation. He knows every time we curse our neighbor in silence. Every thought like this offends his holiness. Are we feeling exposed yet? Let's go on. How about if we consider the range of crimes that the Lord forbids most strongly in his word, which include the roots of murder, envy, hatred, anger, and desire for revenge. Hear what the word of God says about these things. Romans 12, verse 19. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, Paul says, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 John 2, 9 through 11. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light and there's nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded him. And there's many more passages 
which expose our hearts, which expose the hatred, the envy, the roots of murder, which live there. Can we really sit there week after week? Can we really sit here this afternoon knowing and loving the law of the Lord and yet look down our noses at our neighbor, at those vile and terrible criminals, those people who are so unlike us? Brothers, isn't it a fact that many of us have made anger a way of life? We walk around the job site like little kings in their fiefdom, and woe to anyone who crosses us or gets in our way. Or we rule our houses like tyrants, and woe to the child who should upset the balance of our life. Or we play sports like it's modern warfare, and the lives of everyone else on the field exist for the building up of our own ego. Doesn't matter what we do, he got in my way. Sisters, how many of you aren't, aren't led with envy driving your emotions and your actions? You watch the world and you despise the woman who has more money or more time or more children or less or a better home or a better relationship with her husband or her kids or a nicer garden or whatever. Instead of valuing the life of your neighbor, instead you look at what she has that you don't You objectify her by that, and then you hate her in your heart. Young men, what kind of games are you playing at home? How did you spend your hours this past summer? Have you made it a habit of spending several hours every day killing your neighbor? In increasingly realistic and gory ways, I'm speaking about video games in which The practice of murder is made real. Now you'll say, it's just a game. It doesn't matter. It's not real. Oh, really? How about if we translated that into the next commandment, the seventh commandment? Oh, it's just a picture of a woman. There's nothing wrong with it. No, we realize that the picture of a woman can stir up lust within our hearts. How come we don't believe that a pixelated human victim in a game stirs up feelings of pride and violence and anger within us. Young woman, what kind of games are you playing every day? Maybe you're not spending hours in front of the TV. What kind of games do you play every day with your relationships? Where friends are ranked, numbered, included, excluded, trashed, and then picked up again, like the dolls that you used to play with when you were children. It's tempting to dishonor a person's life in an instant if it will give you more power and security in the group. Shall we go on? No, we shouldn't. We could, but we won't. I want to make a point. The Word of God makes the point very strongly with us. But we're not going to go on in this way because the commandments are the rule of thankfulness for our lives. But this is the point. This is the point that we need to get if we're going to get anywhere 
with the sixth commandment. And yes, if we're going to get anywhere in loving our neighbor, this is the point. If the commandment fills us with self-righteous pride and arrogance, then we are going to be doing the very opposite of what God intends. If you hear, do not murder, and it makes you think about how much better you are than all those terrible people who are murderers, and you're going to get nowhere in the daily conversion, in the renewal of your life. If you have your book of praise open, flip back a few pages to Lord's Day 33. Lord's Day 33. In introducing the Ten Commandments, this essential Lord's Day comes to us and teaches us about the true repentance or conversion of man. It's talking about the process of sanctification. And there's two parts to this process. And they go in order. The dying of the old nature, then the coming to life of the new. The first part happens when we grieve over our sins. Question answer 89. What is the dying of the old nature? It is to grieve with heartfelt sorrow that we have offended God by our sins and more and more to hate it and flee from it. It's not to look at everybody else and to think how terrible they are. No, the law is pointed directly at us and at our hearts. This commandment fuels our grief. But then the second part comes. What's the coming to life of the new nature? It's a joyful, it's a heartfelt joy in God through Christ and a love and a delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. To do those actions which out of true faith are in accordance with the law of God. And that's what we consider now in our last point, the way of true love. The second part of this process of conversion. It's true that the sixth commandment teaches us the depths of our sin and our weakness. But yet, at the very same time, it it shines a light on the incredible possibilities, the far reach of love in this world. The catechism in Lord's Day 40, the last question and answer asks, is it enough then that we do not kill our neighbor in any such way? And the beautiful, yes, really, the gospel answer is no. No. Why is that such a beautiful gospel answer? It's because of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was motivated by love in his life. Can you imagine if it was enough for him simply not to kill his neighbor in any such way? No, but we see this command fulfilled in Jesus Christ our Lord. The obedience of Jesus Christ to the sixth commandment is our very salvation because he loved his neighbor, because he cherished our lives. He came to this world, went to the cross. We mentioned already how much he cherished the life of his neighbors. Now consider the nature of his neighbors. In contrast to his wisdom, we were fools. In contrast to his strength, we were weaklings. Rather than being perfect like him, we're sinners. Murderers, adulterers, liars and thieves, all of us. And yet he did not disdain us, abuse us, or reject us. Rather, 
He reached out in love toward us. He cherished our lives. He had compassion on us. Yes, the very ones that murdered him in heart and in action, he sought their repentance and forgiveness. The Lord Jesus Christ loved his enemies. Hallelujah. The Lord Jesus Christ loved his enemies. We were once enemies of our Lord Jesus Christ, but he calls even his enemies into his kingdom. When they repent, he doesn't hold their sins against them but he warmly embraces them in love. He so cherished the lives of his neighbors that he gave up his life to save us from our much-deserved condemnation. And so when we look to Jesus Christ, yes, we see our salvation, but we also see in him the way forward, the way that he has lived, of loving his neighbor, of so cherishing their life, that he would not hate them, abuse them, or hurt them, but in every way he sought their good. Looking to Jesus Christ, we see the extent of the love that this commandment calls us to. And yes, the command to love and cherish our neighbor is very far-reaching. There is a little story that perhaps will illustrate this for you. It's a story of a marriage counselor. A man comes to him one day, he's a Christian marriage counselor, and he says to him, Sir, I need a divorce. I cannot live with my wife anymore. She's driving me crazy. And so the counselor says back to him, Well, are you a Christian? Yes, I am. Okay, well, the Bible commands you to love your wife. He says, But sir, you don't understand. I can't even live in the same house as her. And so the counselor says, well, why don't you move next door then? The man says, well, what kind of advice is that? He says, well, the Bible commands us to love our neighbor. The man says, no, you don't understand. This woman brings out the worst in me, and I bring out the worst in her. Even if we lived in separate houses, we'd still be fighting all the time. There's no way we could even live beside each other. There's no hope for us. The counselor says, well, I don't know about that. Actually, from what you just described, it sounds like there's a lot of hope for you. What do you mean? Well, the counselor says, well, would you say she's your enemy? The man says, oh, yes, absolutely. She's my enemy. There's no way we can get along. And so the counselor says, well, good. The Bible commands us to love even our enemies. It's extremely far-reaching. There is no one who lies outside of this command to love no one. The commandment that pierces us most violently heart is the one that lays out for us the beautiful path in which we are to walk. What way of life is more beautiful than the way that the Lord Jesus Christ himself has walked on this earth? What could be better than to appreciate in each and every person that you see and know and come into contact with the special character of life that God himself has created them with and the incredible potential that they have in being created in the image of God? What could be better than to treat them in a way that is equal to their standing, their status as image of God? This requires from us much wisdom, much humility, 
much patience. We must learn to love. We must begin realizing the command. It requires in every way the Spirit of God to work this sort of love in us. We cannot find it in ourselves. But the Spirit of God is powerful. And in the end, this is the way the Lord calls us to live as his redeemed children, honoring and esteeming the lives of all those who are made in his image. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.